Good afternoon to all and a big welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jen Bartlett. Whether you're listening on your analogue radio or digital or online, either streaming or podcasting through 3cr.org.au. Today we travel back to Mullumbimby in northern New South Wales for news of the recovery from the flooding. Then on to the Maldives in the Indian Ocean for a permaculture project and then back to the Northern Rivers for future permaculture. All with Wayne Wadsey Wadsworth. Then the ABC program Q&A. A sociology of Q&A. What it addresses and what it misses. Also War versus Peace with Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees. More repression in Jerusalem, deaths, injuries and arrests as fanatical right-wing settlers attacked Palestinians and they were supported by the so-called Israeli Defence Force. Jose Ramos Horta preparing for a second shot at the presidency of Timor-Leste, promising a political earthquake. Peter Murphy, human rights and trade union activist, will look at that future but where would we be without our week that was with Mr. Kevin Healy? All that until six o'clock and then the excellent program done by law. A week, Jan, listener, when Parade's second week, big ideas, altruistic concern and exciting vision captured the nation's imagination and the big ideas, altruistic concern, exciting vision, exciting news is there's about four more weeks of the same to go, 25 days of intellectual debate like the caring business class hayseed and sheepshit coalition accusing the Socialist Party of scare tactics by claiming a re-elected government would be the end of the world. The Socialist Party countering accusing the coalition of scare tactics by claiming a Socialist Party government would be the end of the world, each attacking the other's non-policies while the electorate was by the day becoming convinced it seems more like the end of the world, still facing 25 days of by the day. Big Supremo scuttled them more last son, a.k.a. Scummo and his lot, and Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Anthony Albinguzzi and his lot, with the Canberra Press Gallery hanging on their every word, which clearly explains the huge support for the undecided party as the electorate not hanging on every word vainly searches for a third choice and while Anthony discovered what living with COVID let it rip means we're sure the electorate feels a bipartisan bout of laryngitis would be a relief as Scummo and Anthony were suddenly mostly in agreement as true blue Aussie was confronted by the non-wisdom of Solomon as China signed an agreement posing a major threat to peace in the Pacific. Uh, so China is now stationing train killers on the Solomon Islands, Scummo. It might. It well might. It's a huge worry. So it hasn't. Uh, but as Scummo said, it might. It well might. It, it's a huge worry. Yes, big worry, because has it already got train killers stationed all around the Pacific, in the Philippines, for instance? No, thank goodness, the US of the UN of the US of the world has train killer military bases there. Thank goodness, but, but are they in Korea? Uh, no, thankfully, the US of has bases there. 
thankfully, but, but also thankfully, there's no Chinese trained killers in Papua New Guinea, are there, which is even closer than the Solomons. No, no, the good news is that the US of and True Blue Aussie have trained killers there protecting us, uh, and the people of PNG. Ah, yes, good news, and True Blue Aussie, there's no Chinese trained killers here, are there? Absolutely not, certainly not. We have peace-loving US of bases and US of marines protecting us from whoever might threaten peace in the Pacific. Although there was not absolute concurrence, as the Socialist Shadow Minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Penny Left Wing, declared allowing China to sign an agreement with the Solomons was the worst failure in foreign policy since World War II, showing, apart from there's no hyperbole in politics and especially in election campaigns, just how serious a threat this must be, how serious a foreign policy disaster when we consider our invasions of Korea, of Malaya, of Vietnam, of Iraq, of Afghanistan et al, a trail of military train killer disasters, of Pine Gap and other nuclear targets, so we can but panic at this biggest disaster in foreign policy, so serious the US of set its big Pacific train killer gun to the Solomons to set them straight. And what thanks did he get from the ingrates? They asked, how come his was the first official US of visit for 37 years? How discourteous, how ungrateful, as if the US of doesn't care about them, only cares about them now because, <laughs> disgraceful, what a ridiculous thought. Through all this, Mother Earth was kicking up her legs on the dance floor of the universe. When Anthony declared, if coal mines stack up environmentally and then commercially, which is the decision for the companies, then they get approved. Without explaining how coal mines do stack up environmentally, or even commercially for that matter, maybe he meant coal mines stuff up the environment. I'll, I'll just check that. No, no, he definitely said stack up environmentally, the, the stuff up being to his environmental credentials. Now, let me go to what could well be Scummo's secret weapon, the amygdala. The, the what I hear? The amygdala, the brain's emotional processing center. See, a university college study in London into the amygdala's responses shows that the more people lie, the easier it is to lie. Atskamo, could this be your secret weapon? Oh, that is an outrageous implication. I have never told a lie in my life. <laughs> Boy, is his amygdala working overtime this afternoon. Scummo described criticism of his captain's pick transphobic candidate Catherine Dives lower than low as a pylon. Whatever that means. Probably an attempt to balance her views which are a pile of. This sensitivity carried to his telling the mother of an autistic child, he, Scummo, is blessed not to have had an autistic child, which incredibly the mother thought was, was a bit insensitive. When we know Scummo's church, his Christianity, which has driven his love thy neighbour approach to everything he does, like no proper papers, queue jumping illegal, boat people, for instance, knows the more filthy rich you are, the more the dear baby Jesus loves and blesses you. The poorer, the more the dear baby hates and unblesses you. And ditto. 
having a child with any disability shows the dear baby unblesses you. So Scummo was just expressing Christian truth and ensuring his place in paradise. Even if Anthony thinks it would be paradise to occupy the place Scummo now holds on that side of the house. As what passes as debate was confined to Lord Rupert of Wapping's pay TV channel, getting no complaints from those who refuse to or can't afford to pay Lord Rupert to watch the same crap they already get anyway. No risk of tuning into the what passes as debate by accident. With the policy chasm exposed, like on that no proper papers queue jumping issue, with Scummo insisting his policy was far crueler and Anthony wasn't nearly as cruel, and Anthony insisting he is just as cruel to those seeking refuge. And talk about spoil sports. As Scummo and Anthony both commit to zero emissions by 2050, our zero emissions are better than your zero emissions. Our zero emissions are better than your zero emissions. Spoil sports, infrastructure partnerships, True Blue Aussie, with disastrous timing, has called on them, talk about unreasonable demands, listener, called on them to show how they are going to get to their target. Goodness me, doesn't infrastructure True Blue Aussie realise that would require them to have a policy and not just a statement? And we all know when the polluters and their political supporters say zero emissions, zero emissions doesn't mean zero emissions. Fossils offset by a few trees which may or may not exist. So infrastructure True Blue Aussie is calling for them to show how they will reach zero emissions, which doesn't mean zero emissions, when reaching zero emissions, which doesn't mean zero emissions, requires no more policy detail than zero emissions by 2050, leading them to argue over important details like whose zero emissions is the better zero emissions. So infrastructure mobs stop being a spoil sport. As Anthony was laid low with COVID, the pejorative Dan government succumbed to pressure from the sundry chambers of profits and scummo and caring business class would-be state supremo, that lobster with a mobster guy, over easing COVID restrictions like isolation when we come into contact with a positive case. But that lobster with guy attacked the government over delays in the triple O service he said would put lots of lives at risk. And turning people who may well have COVID may be contagious loose is not putting lives at risk, lobster with. Isolation is putting caring business profits at risk. There is no comparison. It's a matter of priorities, which the pejorative Dan somehow can't understand. And the Chamber of Profits, Paul Guerra, presumably for war against anything that gets between the caring business class and making a killing, well, a financial one, not a COVID one, said businesses will play their part as isolation is jettisoned and masks discarded. Uh, you say isolation is causing staff shortages, but now they have to go to work, the whole staff could come down with COVID. And we must make sure the government doesn't let them use that as an excuse not to go to work. Everyone knows Omicron is a mild variant. Uh, but, but, but there's hundreds in hospital, deaths every day, mild deaths. I hope you're not suggesting the caring business class and scummo and the lobster with guy would put profit ahead of community health. 
Well, of course not. Well, he said business will play its part, and, and we can't disagree with that. After all, ScoMo said, Hallelujah! Showing, letting it rip, living and dying with is the dear baby Jesus thing to do with, do when the restaurant and catering prophets, True Blue Aussies, Wes Lumpet said it was a no-brainer. Which, on one definition, it certainly is. Uh, finally, Scummo and the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Macalia Costa Workers, promised they would double the huge penalties already imposed on the evil CFMEU. And as we mentioned last week, supported by their wise egalitarian High Court honours, who know what a hard day's work on a building site is. Double. So workers say taking action over a safety matter would be fined lots and lots and lots more than their caring employer if the safety matter then just happened to injure or kill one of them, showing just how lawless these construction workers are. And still finally, though, bad luck Scummo's plan to create jobs for responsible workers, those exercising their God-given right not to join a union, announced with great flair in a Reams factory came a trifle unstuck when the very next day Reams announced it was heading for Vietnam and shedding its lazy, avaricious, true workforce. And a stroke of good luck for Scummo, the mainstream, panting, breathless Canberra press gallery didn't see this as anywhere nearly as much a gaffe as Anthony's memory lapse. Oh, and finally, finally, aren't we all so looking forward to the next 25 days? Good afternoon. And I think it might be a very long 25 days putting up with the mob from Canberra. But don't forget to listen to Kevin and company tomorrow morning on City Limits 9 until 10 on this wonderful radio station, 3CR. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.com.
www.foodnotbombs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. And I'm speaking once again to Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees from Sydney University, recipient of the Jerusalem Al-Qaeda Peace Prize, author, whose most recent book is Cruelty or Humanity, published by Policy Press Books. Stuart, two topics for discussion. Number one, a sociology of Q&A and peace versus war. First, a sociology of Q&A, what is addressed and what is missed. When I think about the hundreds of issues you could have written about for Pearls and Irritations, I'm wondering why you chose Q&A. Because it's been a sort of stereotype standard bearer of what is alleged to be reasonable discussion in Australia. And obviously politicians and and other writers compete to, to get an invitation to appear on it. But the public interest in it appears to have waned for precisely the reasons that I mentioned, namely, you know, they, they want to talk about tasty immediate controversies, uh, very little to do with the long-term public good. And, and in a way, what the standard of Q&A reflects the standard of political analysis. That's partly what motivated me. So are there too many politicians on it? Well, I wouldn't say too many. I don't, I'm not one of these people who says, you know, that, that politicians all don't tell the truth. I don't, I'm not, I don't believe that. For some reason or other, they constantly invite a Barnaby Joyce to appear. They have never taken the risk of inviting a representative from the Greens, right? So the alleged openness and free speech is, is incredibly limited. Why is the ABC frightened to um, invite somebody who represents the Greens but seem to uh, automatically think that it's about time they got, got Barnaby Joyce back? Did you watch the episode when Sasha gillies Lakakis was kicked out by Stan Grant? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Yeah. What are your thoughts on uh, that? Look, well, I think Stan Grant's above himself. I think he thinks he's got a monopoly of wisdom. Now, whether he did that spontaneously himself or whether he was instructed by producers behind the scenes, I've no idea. But it was a de- for a country claiming to be interested in free speech and criticising the dictatorial behaviour of, of Putin and co. It was a crazy incident. It could have been his distaste about that guy could have been expressed much more convincingly, much more subtly, without the kind of heavy-handed get him out of here. It was, it was, it was bullying at large. I mean, of course, everybody regrets, can't stand what's going on in Ukraine, but our standards, our tolerance, our um, respect for principles of free speech, even if people tell lies, uh, should have been better. And in fact, Grant is disgraced. I mean, he, he, last week on Q&A, he behaved as though he was much more important than the questioner. A young woman asked a question, and then Grant from the chair interprets it to his own for his own interests and persists with his own questioning, where the, the young questioner was left stranded. Now, that's, that's one of the reasons why people 
are dismayed by politics or dismayed by alleged elite groups controlling agendas. And um, his behaviour that night was on full display. What about the other chairs? I thought that Virginia Trioli that particular night when I watched and used that as the basis for my analysis, I thought she was actually pretty sharp and pretty perceptive and pretty fair. And and she didn't um, take up a lot of time with her own um, her own persistence. David Spears, I can't, I don't think I've watched him enough to, to have a comment to comment on it. I mean, people regret the say they regret the days of um, Tony Jones, but <laughs> Tony used to run the show as his own show anyway, and the, there was a novelty about that which he got away with for, for years and years. You maintain it misses an opportunity to inform, let alone inspire the audience. Can you give a few more examples? If you take the discussion about climate change and energy policy, the preoccupation is with controversy about whether about the limited the limited policies of the Liberals and the Labour Party, messing around with a few percentages as to whether they're going to limit the greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Whereas the the, the question, what's going to happen in 10, 20, 50 years' time in, in a society that's in, in a part of the world, or in every part of the world, that's threatened by massive catastrophes from climate change, we're not well informed about that. There are plenty of brilliant scientists who are writing and talking about it, but when it comes to public discussion, it's governed by the, the, the tasty headline, the quick bit, the, even, even the sort of gotcha questions that's a real problem you could apply the same as apply my argument to the treatment of refugees i mean this the the long-term cruelty and consequences australia's attitude to refugees which is now being used by the british government to justify the idea of flying asylum seekers to rwanda that we the public is not told simply easily and repeatedly about those long-term consequences. That's my argument. Now, there's a huge opportunity on a program like Q&A to raise the standard of discussion, raise the, the levels of information and vision about the future. Is there enough young people chosen to be on that panel? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's just a question of people being young. They can be very young or very old. The question is how well-informed, how sophisticated are they? I mean, ABC's often put the token, a token young person on, a bit like the drum program does. They have their token performers. But the question is, how critical are they? How analytical are they? How well, how thoughtful about the future can they be? And um, that's the yardstick which would uh, um, impress me. Well, if you were employed by the ABC and you had some say into this program, what would you be doing? I'd be asking them not just to discuss the, the latest controversy, but to, to, to discuss with, with regard to what Australia stands for, where it wants to be, how we might all live together fruitfully, right? Because if you appear on Q&A, as I have, 
you get a note from the ABC sort of listing all the, the controversies of the week. That's sort of to be reasonably well prepared. You're not told what the questions are going to be, but you're told what the issues are around which the questions will be focused. My point is that we need to be we need to be saying, you know, can we run an economy under the principles of capitalism? Can we run an economy in which depends on on continual growth and the damage to the environment, the exploitation of the environment? Those are the sort of requests I'd make to people selected to appear. Has anyone ever tried to put those issues? Well, I, no, I don't. I mean, I used to know Peter McAvoy, who was an impressive producer of Q&A, but I don't have access to, I don't, I don't uh, talk to anybody who's got influence behind the scenes. I mean, that's another thing. We've got, the, we've got loads of journalists who make these commentaries about current affairs, and, there were, and, and they're so ill-informed. There was a young lady, a young woman on, the, on ABC the other evening, making a summary of what Morrison and Albanese had been doing on their campaign. It was trivial. It was childish. In some ways, it was heavily biased. And I, I thought, where did, they get this? where did they get this journalist from? What are her qualifications for spewing that nonsense across the television screen? But, of course, most of the public, even if they watched it, don't have any, don't have any response to that question. They just have to put up put up with this almost anesthetizing behavior by a particular journalist. Do you believe that there's political pressure behind the scenes in programs like this and also the presentation of the news? Oh, absolutely, certainly. I mean, it, it might not be pressure via a direct phone call, but it's internalized. The management doesn't want to have their budget cut more, wants to appear, quote, balanced, unquote. They have their own self-censorship. That's the problem. Even in a democracy, you know, it's, the pressure comes as much from self-censorship as the perceived arrival of a, of a phone call from cabinet officers. I don't know whether you want to answer this question or not, but just after Easter, they paraded out the heads of the various churches to give their oh, impressions of Easter and the way things are going and they listed the two Catholic heads of the church and then they gave the head of Hillsong and then they gave the Anglicans and then they gave the minor Christians and I was just amazed the fact that Hillsong was second in line to the churches, yeah. the Christian churches. Yeah, yeah. Now was that a mistake or was that on purpose? Ah, look, again, I think it's, um, if you're white, middle class, relatively privileged, not too bothered about your housing or financial security, then you, <laughs> you assume something, this phenomenon called the Hillsong is part of the, part of the establishment and should get a nod. In the same breath, we claim that this is a multicultural society. So, um, you know, the idea of interfaith dialogue, which wouldn't necessarily include evangelicals, that's put on the back burner. It's not, not included. The second issue you wrote about is peace versus war, the perennial question. 
Absolutely, for our for everyone's survival. That's the question that has to be addressed in favour of, of peace. But so many political leaders uh, around the world, around the globe, not just in under uh, dictatorial regimes, are so illiterate about non-violence that they're not very conversant with peace. That that's a huge problem. I can give you an example of that if you like that's come out this morning. In response to the Chinese having influence over the Solomon Islands and allegedly threatening Australia's security, the response of the so-called expert in the defense think tanks in Canberra, immediately they're saying that what Australia needs to do to guarantee its future is to buy missiles that could land in the Solomon, could be aimed at prospective Chinese bases in the Solomons. I mean, what a naughty, diabolical nonsense. If they thought in terms of peace perspectives, they would say, well, it's quite apparent that we need to be in dialogue with the Chinese, even encouraging people to learn Mandarin. It's, it's, it's obvious that we need to spend a great deal more time in dialogue, in, in, in the fruitful exchanges, uh, examples of hospitality with people who live and work in the Solomon Islands not just in response to crises. I mean, those are the sort of peace initiatives I would argue for, not the purchase of some missiles. If you wanted to look outside the block, you'd say, well, maybe the people of the Solomons remember what happened to the North Solomon Islands and Australia's involvement with Bougainville. Yeah, yeah just remind me, you're talking about the Bougainville Civil War. Yes, well... Bougainville is the North Solomons. Yeah. Well, again, my recall of that, and it's pretty limited. I mean, it's, it's really about the, the corporate, the, about the exploitation of the natural resources of Bougainville and the um, anger, the long-term anger of indigenous people, that that should end. So that was, as far as I recall, the seeds of that uh, civil war. And then Australia, again, was late in the day to, I mean, I think we turned a blind eye to what was going on in the same way that we have over the, over the copper mines in, um, in West Papua. But then we helped the PNG government by sending them helicopter gunships, you know. Absolutely, yeah. Now, always the response is, you can see it almost in the, <laughs> It can see it almost now in Ukraine, the response is always more arms. More arms to kill, more arms to destroy, more arms to contaminate the environment. Because one of the one of the terrible casualties of war is not only the millions of people killed and the complete destruction of um, uh, of homes and houses and hospitals, but the lasting destruction to a fragile uh, environment. Can you imagine what an extra $1 billion worth of American arms is going to do to this conflict? It's guaranteed to go on for about a year. I've no idea what behind-the-scenes bargaining is going on, but I would be against this huge investment of money. My concern is, is the following language of peace being used when they meet with Putin and Lavrov and Co.? I mean, are they really saying, are we here on Earth to destroy life, 
or to enhance it? Are we going to talk about, when we slowly ending this conflict, about the massive resupply of medical resources, the rebuilding of hospitals, the plans for the rehabilitation of millions of people? I mean, if you speak that language, if you raise those questions, then you produce a totally different agenda, particularly the question, my question, are we in the short time we have on the planet, are we here to kill people or to enhance life? Now, how many times have that specific, clear, simple question been put to Biden or to Putin or to Lavrov or to Morrison? That's my problem. And, you know, even universities don't, you know, they don't want to have a bar of that question because they, they've closed just about every peace centre in, 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 in Australia. You told me the story a few years ago that when you were setting up or wanting to set up the peace studies at Sydney University, you had to add conflict studies before they'd agree to it. That's correct, yes, because they could see that that gave it a sort of a more academic image. You know, they, they reacted first by saying that peace wasn't you know, sufficiently intellectually worthy to justify a location in a university like Sydney. And then the vice chancellor of the time, who was a professor of history, quite a, uh, an impressive one, he said, well, there has been a lot of conflict associated with peace, hasn't there? Why don't we add conflict to the title? And I said, oh, that, that sounds fine. He said, very good. We'll, have a, we'll call it Peace and Conflict Studies. That's how it came about. To me, it seems the fact that the journalists aren't interested in peace either. They, they don't know about peace. They're not yeah, trained. I think they just describe what they think is going on. I mean, they're not even well informed about the war, really. They're all, if you read their reports, they're pretty mediocre. They're pretty superficial. They're not there. They're not observing. They have to get their information through secondary sources. The peaceful alternatives absolutely defy them. I suppose they're, they, they're neither encouraged to think in the, with those perspectives, let alone to write about them. There would be people in Ukraine and America and Russia who are struggling to promote the idea of peace. Even brave people, Alexei Navalny and all his colleagues across, across Russia, that... <laughs> That's not worth any column inches, according to, according to the journalists here. Well, when we're watching, listening and reading Western media in recent months, we need to remember first John Lennon, Give Peace a Chance, and also Pete Seeger, A Time for Peace. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. If I had a hammer, I'd hammer. Uh, he wants everybody to be brothers and sisters all over this land, is what he sang. Pete Seeger sang. There are plenty of anthems for peace. I mean, people need to remark, be reminded that, 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 you know, the great Ninth Symphony of Beethoven is known as the Peace Symphony. It's, the, it's actually the national anthem of the European Union. You need to strike up the chords and the, particularly of the last movement, the choral movement in, in, in Beethoven's Ninth. That would be a much better contribution to your health than another hand grenade. Thank you once again, Stuart. All right, Dan. It's lovely to talk to you. Lovely okay. to talk to you. Yeah, bye-bye. The wonderful Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees talking about issues 
of peace and war. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Today we briefly revisit Mullumbimby, known as the biggest little town in Australia, with resident permaculturist Wayne Wadsey-Wadsworth. Then move on to work he completed in the Maldives nearly a decade ago and new projects in the Northern Rivers area of New South Wales. It's over a week since I spoke with Wadsey and I asked him first how things are going now the rain has stopped, at least for the time being. Yeah, look, everything's been put on stop for Mullen for a while. Everyone's just getting their, um, you know, their shit back together, I suppose, for want of a better word. Cleaning up houses and a lot of the houses were flooded in town and a lot of the sections leading into Mullen being cut off with landslides and bridges being washed away. But um, I'd have to say they've been pretty fast, like council and government have been sort of worked together fairly well and cleaned up and all that sort of thing's been pretty rapid really considering the amount of damage that was done. So I think in a couple of weeks Mullen will be back to what we describe as normal. I don't know if there's such a thing as normal in Mullen Boombi but um, yeah you know, things are getting back to normal and people are starting to organise themselves again and do the sort of thing that Mullen does but yeah it's an interesting little place Mullen. It's um, very diverse and you know, lots of people with lots of good ideas and a lot of people doing things. It's only a tiny little town, but it's got a big community garden and, um, you know, people are very much involved in the community. And I think Mullen was sort of, there's a lot of refugees from Byron Bay who can't afford even to rent a 
Cabin and Byron Bay anymore, so they've moved to Mullum. I, I imagine what will happen is Mullum prices go up, which they are, they'll be forced out to Nimmin, and then they'll, they'll be forced out to Cuyahoga. They'll move westward if the prices become ridiculously expensive. Let's go back a few years. Well, it's to 2013, the Maldives. Now, the Maldives. Most people wouldn't even know where the Maldives was. No, it's only it's a tiny little country of about 800 islands, of, of which about 400 are occupied, and it's below Sri Lanka, so it's sort of below India. But it's really stuck out in the middle of nowhere, and no one much bothered about it. It's being colonised by pretty much everybody, but and their sort of national fame is overthrowing, I think, the French, I think. No, the Portuguese overthrew this. Portuguese had a flag on an island with a... a a little house on there and they sort of had a bit of revolution about a hundred odd years ago and kicked the Portuguese out and then be, so became a Muslim country really but very interesting place they have their own alphabet which is not that similar to anybody else's alphabet So, and the island is uh, I would imagine of Indian descent probably certainly look more, probably more like Sri Lanka and sort of looking people really but basically the economy before tourism was um, fishing and Coconuts, and, but mainly fishing. You know, people mostly lived out of the sea, fishing. And the place was teeming with fish before the Japanese and big callers moved in and knocked the guts out of all the tuna and stuff. And a lot of the tourist resorts uh, were just terrible, really. They just had, you know, rubbish. In the Maldives, they have this place called Rubbish Island, and the boats come and pick up the rubbish from your island and then take the rubbish to this island, and they basically burn the plastic. So they mound up all the plastic in a huge football field sort of size and then they pour waste all over it and set fire to it. Like a toxic hell, basically. But also what happens when the ships, tugs through, not ships, but pick up the rubbish, it's mostly in black plastic bags. So if the island's paying, let's say, you know, $3,000 to get rid of their rubbish every week and then the, the tug goes to Rubbish Island and by a miraculous something miraculous happening, they only end up with half the amount of what they picked up and the other half wound up in the sea. That's all they pay for when they get to the other end. So quite often you'll be on a nice luxury resort and a big bag of plastic rubbish will float past you. You know, you're paying two or $3,000 a night for some of these resorts and sitting on the balcony watching a black plastic bag float past, which actually happened to me. I wasn't, I wasn't paying that much money to stay on it, but it was a part of my package. Um, so, yeah, we're just sitting on the... Thing in, a, in a beautiful lagoon, watching the fish, and then next thing there's a big plastic bag floating by. So tourism's been sort of good in some ways, but mainly it's been quite negative environmentally, of course, because a lot of the food and wine and all that sort of thing comes from imported from somewhere else. No Jack, facility to, um, to, to do that. How did the project that you were involved with come about? I was on a permaculture list of, you know, like work and they they just advertised in there they wanted their island to be which was Sonova Fushi to be green um, and the owners of the island who I'm still friends with were very keen to um, not just appear to be green but to actually be green so they put a lot of their own food on the island they had a big garden rubbish was a big problem uh, that was being sent off so them would sort of have a big bonfire there every week and send everyone off to a spit and give them champagne and burn all the organic material. They weren't burning, you know, inorganic material, but 
the island produced so much green matter for the pathways and that every week that they'd have probably, I don't know, two or three tonne of green stuff every week and they'd burn it off. I applied for the job and went over there for a week and, you know, met everybody and then you come back home and they have a chat about whether you'd be suitable for the job and then they bring you up out a week later and see when can you start. You do a 360, so you go over to the island, you meet all the staff, you meet all the managers and things like that and have meetings with them and, you know, look around the island and decide whether you actually want to be there and they want you. And they obviously get together and after you've gone and go, yeah, we we like this candidate the best. Um, and then they offer you the job. So they, you know, they just flew me over for a week and everything was paid, all expenses paid and all the good food. And it was a very upmarket island. It's like, you know, the cheapest place to stay was about $800 a night sort of thing. But as I said, the owners were very green and wanted the island to be as green as possible. So then I came up with the concept of Echo Centro Waste of Wealth, which is sort of a bit of the work I was doing in in, uh, in Cuba and um, El Salvador, looking at waste and you know, turning it into something useful. Then I put up a proposal to turn the site where they were burning all the stuff and where the rubbish would get collected every week and sent off to the on the tug on the boat. So then we set up a whole recycling centre, basically glass, plastics, all, and, and set up a biochar and biogas thing for food waste so that got stopped getting dumped out to sea. And then we returned that to the land. So it was quite a unique project in that I haven't seen, unfortunately, another one like it. should be in every council in Australia, but um, we don't uh, deal with particularly smart people in Australia or anywhere else for that matter, we managed to probably reduce the waste going off the island by about 60%. All the woody stuff we turned into carbon and then charged it up with the biogas and put it in the gardens and we increased productivity very substantially and you know the amount of water needed to water the gardens, we reduced that very substantially and, and improved the food quality. So the customers were getting better food. It actually saved them... That's, the centre wasn't that expensive. It was about 300000 350000 to build the whole thing from woe to go. And it saved them about 50000 a year on just rubbish and that they were dumping and um, having to pay rid of. So it was a saving for them and we, we improved the soil and improved the environment of the island. Still going strong. I think the particular company owned about three or four resorts and we put another similar one on their Thai resort. It sounds easy when you say it. Quickly, but I'm imagining there was a lot of work went into that. Yeah, there was about a month to six weeks of just planning and drawing and doing budgets and all that sort of thing. Because I just present a budget to them and tell them how much it's going to cost and how much labour I'd need. So they gave me, I think, 50000 the first year, and then I put in a budget for 300000 or maybe a bit more for the actual building of the establishment. But the GSC struck the Global Financial system collapsed and then I lost half my budget so it's sort of I had to get back to my usual thing of scrounging and finding things that were bolted down <laughs> and all that sort of thing and I actually had a really good Indian engineer who was working with me and um, you know, we managed to probably build it for less than 300000 but it, it was quite a substantial, I don't know, you've probably seen the video, it was quite a substantial centre you know, it was fully sort of recycled and machinery and yeah, but we started in earnest. We built the whole centre, got the, the, the you know, trained the staff, the three staff, 
and um, had it completely operational within a year. So it was, you know, it was pretty pretty good. Was hemp critical for this? No, we would have liked it, but hemp, like the, uh, the Maldives government is complete, well, was then completely paranoid about hemp, so we didn't really even mention it really. It's, it, if you get caught with hemp in the Maldives, they put you in jail for 10 years. So it's a very, you know, sort of paranoid about I mean, they do grow it over there. Obviously, people grow it. Young, the young people smoke it, but yeah, very illegal. So no, we didn't mention hemp, but I'm trying to talk them into putting hemp into their Thai resort at the moment because Thailand's actually got a very progressive position on hemp now. They're, they're encouraging co-ops and all sorts of things for people to grow native medicinal hemp, but the um, government of Thailand is um, gone the opposite way. It used to be very, I mean, Thailand, you know, if you they get you with an ounce, they lock you up. So that's looking promising in terms of the Thai hemp industry. That might be the country that moves quicker than anybody else. Is bamboo a factor there in the Maldives? Yeah, we were growing bamboo. Obviously, not like because the islands are very small. You know, like the people, most of the islands you can walk around them in half an hour. The outside of them, where I was, you could walk around the island and. Yeah, half an hour, quite easily. So, yeah, they're fairly small islands, but it was a very strange thing. Like, the island I was on was very green and, you know, lush and coconut trees and fruit trees and designed feng shui. There was no straight roads, so you always felt there wasn't many people on the island. And the island directly opposite, where where it wasn't a tourist at all, it was just people living there who had completely denuded it. It was like a desert, hot and horrible, and we, we lived in this lovely, cool jungle. So it was... Just looking, you know, between one island and the other one, it was only like probably a kilometre away. You could literally swim over to it. It's sort of a paradox of seeing something that's well-designed and very productive and something that's just a desert. And, you know, there's literally most of the people that lived on the other island worked at the tourist resort and that's how they got income. But the island itself was just a desolate, pretty horrible, ugly place, really. Once you got started and set up, what was the daily routine? Daily routine was mainly just, you know, keeping on staff and, you know, getting things running properly and things like that. But, you know, once we sort of got, got it running and they and the staff could run it themselves, then we were looking at other projects, you know, improving the garden, garden situation there. And, and um, looking, we were trying to get a substantial, what's called pyrolysis machine over there. Um, we had small pyrolysis machine which we designed and put in place, but we were looking to get a bigger one that could generate electricity. And at, at that time, there weren't, there wasn't really much known about pyrolysis and biochar and all that sort of stuff, and there wasn't really a lot of machinery down in terms of scale, you know, that could deal with large volumes of waste. But that's changed quite substantially now. You know, we've actually designed and built some pretty good pyrolysis systems. Uh, in Australia, which uh, there's actually one in Logan Council has a quite a large pyrolysis operation happening there. So they do a lot of their green waste and turn to biochar, and they get a, they get about nine hundred dollars a cubic meter for it. So Logan City Council has done some really, and Queensland has done some really good stuff in terms of um, you know recycling their waste and turning their waste to wealth. And that's every council in Australia should have a minimum of a you know, industrial 
single-size pyrolysis machine, which can do tyres, it can do inorganic material, it can do food waste and wood waste, and biogas systems, because sewage, same thing, sewage can be turned to biogas and um, fertiliser. Strangely enough, they say, we, you know, we're running out of urea in the world, but sewage treatment plants have hundreds of tonnes of urea. So, you know, it's just a matter of turning it into a, a dry product and selling it to farmers. So we need to look, particularly councils in Australia, need to look at their waste streams and go, well, how do we turn it into something useful rather than dumping it in a big landfill? I mean, you can imagine the amount of materials that have gone to the landfill with these floods. I mean, there's more, must be two or 300,000 tonnes of stuff that could have been recycled has gone to landfill up in Brisbane. So it goes on a truck from Lismore and Byron Bay and gets shipped up to Brisbane and dumped up there. Byron Bay and uh, sends most of our rubbish gets sent up to, to Brisbane and landfills up there. And to my understanding, they built huge ones up there some years ago. It was supposed to last 20 years and they're almost full already. So the cost is horrendous to build a, a landfill now because you can't just dig a hole and dump stuff in it. You've got wine now and They've got to have liquid extraction, things so that the liquid's not flying out to sea. So, but um, you know, the cost of building a tip now isn't just digging it a go and dumping stuff in it, which we used to do in the old days. You've got to, as I said, you've got to line them. You've got to make sure they don't let, there's no leachate coming out. You've got to either trap the gas or use the gas. And if we turned the sewage waste into biogas and fertilizer, then the council's getting a return. There's less CO2 going to the atmosphere and methane. It's a bit of a no-brainer. How much of your work was involved with food production? No, in the Maldives, as I said, we um, we stopped buying fertiliser. So the food waste we turned into fertiliser and compost. And we were making biochar and mulch. So, you know, with things that we were bringing on the island to produce food, we no longer had to do. So, and, you know, we had a, quite a big garden. It was probably could have been a good acre. We certainly produced all our own herbs and vegetables and things like that on the island and it was fresh and organic. So that was a big selling point for them in terms of people actually visiting the island. What about fish? Um, well, there's, yeah, we just send the boat out and catch fish. <laughs> there was still plenty of fish out in the ocean. And look, generally the sea is still quite clean in the Maldives. You know, some of the more uh, the, the newer island or the older islands that develop tourism, they just pump their shit out to sea as, you know, three o'clock in the morning when no one's swimming and it sort of goes away, it doesn't go away something. Basically, you know, it's just round, but we're treating our sewage to quite a high level, but it's still being pumped out, which we obviously should have had a buy. I was trying to actually get a biogas system for the, to swap their sewage system so we could tap off the biogas and then dry the sludge and either biochar it or turn the fertiliser. How long were you there altogether? About three years. Right. Two and a half, two and a half years, yeah. So you must have achieved a fair bit in that time. Yeah, I think in terms of I, I, I achieved probably in a year what it took me eight years to do in Cuba. In fact, probably, you know, like Ecocentro was what we designed. I hadn't really done before because... It's very difficult to pull all the things into one project and obviously you need some reasonable amount of financing for that. Like realistically, if 
you were building in Australia, I would imagine it cost two or three million dollars to build, but because we didn't have to deal with councils and bureaucrats and, you know, miles of regulations, red and green tape, the cost was considerably less. Projects we did in Cuba were very underfunded. They were just funded by, you know, people putting in a few bucks and helping out with the green thing. Got a little bit of funding from Australian Conservation Foundation, but we didn't really have a lot of money in Cuba, so projects really just were, were pretty basic. Whereas, you know, I actually had a working, reasonable working budget in Maldives and could buy equipment or get it made. You know, a lot of the equipment was actually made on the island. We just buy in raw steel and we welded up there. And so a lot of they had an engineering workshop on the island. So, and it, as I said. It, a young guy who was working with me, who was a brilliant engineer, Indian guy, and he he was able to make up a lot of gear that we were making there, which you know, would have cost a lot of money to have it made in engineering workshops. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the problem we have in Australia, as you probably know, is extremely difficult to get anything happening here. Time you deal with all the regulations and and um, you know, council. You got three levels of government: your council, state government, and federal government to deal with when you're trying to do substantial projects in Australia. So you've got three lots of bureaucrats to deal with and three lots of different regulations to deal with. So, you know, I think councils in Australia should get together and put forward a proposal for federal funding for these sorts of systems because they're not rocket science. And the technology for biochar and biogas has improved, you know, tenfold since I was, since I was mucking around with it. So there's just a lot better gear around now. I mean, the pyrolysis machine that Logan put in place, I think, was around 1.2, 1.3 million. So not a lot of money. You know, that takes care of enormous amounts of their um, their waste, and it's also a carbon offset because if you turn the, your waste into biochar, it becomes a stable carbon, and if you put that in the soil, it's a carbon offset. So and it improves the farm. So it's sort of a, it's a no-brainer really when you think of it from a logistics point of view. And, and they keep on, you know, raving on about having to reduce our carbon footprint. Well, if we actually, you know, turned a lot of that carbon into biochar and put it back in the soil, the carbon offset would be phenomenal and farmers would improve their farm soil. So it's strikingly simple and I don't know why people can't grasp the concept. Back home in Australia, I'd like to first talk about cannabis and mm. you're talking there about the Maldives. No, they haven't given it a go. Thailand is giving it a no. go. Yeah. Australia, what's the situation here in Australia? And can you give us the history of the banning of cannabis? Yeah, well, if you go back, the banning of cannabis actually goes back to the United States. I think in 1939 they had the they call it the, the Marijuana Tax Act. And so marijuana in in America was associated with black and, um, and Mexicans who smoked it during the time they were picking the cannabis. And it was, in, in the United States, cannabis would have been, the industrial hemp would have been around probably 2 or 3% THC, so quite low. But um, it was quite often smoked, and not white folks smoke it as well, but Mostly it was smoked by by blacks and um, Mexicans who worked on the hemp farms because it was cheap labour. 
So it became a sort of a racist thing because obviously they couldn't afford alcohol, probably so. But it wasn't particularly strong. It was probably, like I said, three or four THC. It wasn't bred up like today's THC. So the alcohol people who had had prohibition, that had passed and and they created this big bureaucracy. So they looked at how do we how do we keep going? And they thought, oh, we get marijuana and we'll um, we'll ban that. Which is the Marijuana Tax Act didn't actually ban it. It, it made a tax on hemp, industrial hemp, not marijuana, not smoking stuff. And you had to have a tax stamp to grow it. And the tax was so onerous, our farmers just stopped growing it because it, it was too much of a pain in the butt. Grow and then Harry Anslinger, the guy who was in charge of the um, Federal Narcotics Bureau, I think it was called then, campaigned very vigorously against it with the treasurer, Mellon, who was a banker. So the interests were was really to get rid of hemp because it competed with plastics, which was just coming into vogue. It competed with forests, and, and um, the treasurer had big interest in Latin America chopping down forests and making paper. So it was really interests of industry who wanted to stop hemp being used for industrial use. It had really nothing to do with people smoking. It was just a smoke screen, a good for pun. So the Marijuana Tax Act was passed, and most of the other countries were still growing hemp. You know, sort of stupid yanks, you know. English still kept growing, Russians, French, everybody else kept growing it. But in '63 they passed the prohibition of the United Nations, and which Americans put it up, and basically it became illegal growing it just in every Western country in the world. The Russians kept growing it, and so did the French to some degree, and the Eastern Bloc countries just kept growing it and using it. But um, it wasn't really grown anywhere in the in the um, European or capitalist countries. Globally, really, and none was grown in Australia or Canada, United States. So, and it was made. It's only was saying in the last ten years it's come back into to vogue after the hippies fighting for forty odd years to get it legalised. So we'd have to bless the hippies because they're really the people that kept the the whole struggle going and the consciousness about not just uh, him and smoking it, but also you know the many uses of it. But yeah, it's 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 a plant that can be used for industry, medicine, and food. There isn't another plant as versatile as hemp, you know, because we can actually make uh, materials called graphene, which is hundreds of times stronger than steel. It's flexible. It's conducts electricity. It's it's a super material, and that can be made from hemp and probably bamboo. But we need it. We actually need these chemical compositions and hemp and bamboo that bend itself for plastics and, and, and stuff like that. There's lots of other plants that can be made into all sorts of amazing things, but hemp and bamboo tend to be plants that uh, have amazing compositions are you know, relatively easy to process into something else. Food, where does it come into its being there? Food, well, you have hemp. Hemp actually has isoprotein of meat. It has omega-3, 6 and 9 in it in the same proportion as our body has omega-3, 6 and 9. It's the only, and flaxseed oil has 3, 6 and 9 as well, but there's very few plants actually cover all the omegas, which is 3, 6 and 9. Medical point of view, you've got, obviously you make CBD, which is 
having some quite amazing medicinal benefits for people and THC for cancer and a whole host of other diseases, pain and epilepsy and 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 then you've got, as I said, your industrial use of and you can make bricks and plastics and pretty much all the things hemp can compete with the mining industry in terms of we mine minerals, we dig them up, we process them and make them into things. Henry Ford actually had a hemp car in, I think, 35, I think, which you could hit with a sledgehammer and it bounced off. And that was in 1935. So chemistry and the understanding of making plants into plastics and all this thing has come a, a long way uh, since Henry Ford. But also it's been held up because we haven't invested in, in plant-based Consumer goods, you know, we've we've very much invested into petrochemical plastics and things made from mining and and, and uh, fossil fuels. So we haven't really done the research, you know, the research and development really stopped in Western countries, you know, after marijuana tax act, really, because that's what they wanted. They wanted petrochemicals and they wanted, you know, false fertilizers, petrochemical based oil, you know, the whole thing. You know, really in the last 70 odd years, the only thing they've really been interested in investing in is mining, mineral mining, and then uh, fossil fuels, and that's the economy we run at the moment. But if we are serious about reversing greenhouse, then we, we do have to stop. We have to drastically reduce mining, and we have to get rid of fossil fuels, and we have to replace them with something, otherwise we'll, we will go back to being Stone Age people. And, then, and hemp and bamboo fit that, fit that bill more so than any other any other plant because of the amount of biomass they can produce and the usefulness of the plant. And obviously, when you're growing a lot of hemp and bamboo, you're taking up carbon from the atmosphere. If you're making it into a consumer good, then you're storing the carbon. And if you turn it back into biochar and green energy, then you're storing carbon. So the withdrawal of carbon would be quite phenomenal if you actually change your economy from a uh, fossil fuel and mineral based mining economy to a plant based economy, we could actually reverse greenhouse pretty quickly and stabilise the climate. But again, you have paganising, you know, these things, Scotty's out there with his hand in the air with his lump of coal, and they're all super keen to do coal seam gas mining and dig up more of Australia and send it off to China to get, so we can buy it back again. What are you able to do at the eco centre in terms of hemp and bamboo and in your waste to wealth project? Yeah, well, look, I, I set up a project in Nimbin where I was growing hemp. I was working with a guy called Martin Ernie. Mainly, we were looking at building products because there's not, and he was making plastic, like hemp plastic didgeridoos and musical instruments and things like that. But it's very small scale. You know, we, we need, if we're going to be serious about, you know, stabilising the environment and reversing greenhouse, it has to be to scale, it has to be on the sort of scale that Tesla, you know, is making Tesla cars, and you, you've really got to look at that sort of scale. So, for example, I think about 30 years ago, the Japanese were going to set up quite a major cardboard-making factory in Australia when Keating was Prime Minister. And the only reason they didn't do that was because the dollar was very high and they, the sums didn't work. But, you know, when if you were going to set up, you know, something substantial, you're talking about a 1,000-hectare arrangement where you would put a 
processing plants to process your, your raw materials. It has to be at scale, you know, like us mucking around at the moment, we're doing some educational stuff. We're just, we're just setting up processing in Shark Creek to set up a little education centre there. We're doing hemp and setting up all the modelling system, putting them into what we're doing in the Maldives, but it, and educating people, but it's small scale. I mean, if the Labour Party does get elected and they are serious about things, you'd be going to them and say, well, how about, you know, we work on an actual upscaled model where it can be a model for Labour Party talking about bringing back industry in Australia. Why would you want to bring it back to build stuff for mining when we can enrich farmers and give them a good income and make products that are environmentally friendly and does it, the planet. Does it need a certain climate to grow? Yeah, look, probably the best place to grow hemp in Australia, to be honest, is probably you know, sort of Newcastle area. They have pretty much the good climate for growing hemp. We're, we're a bit wet up here. We're, we're better off to grow as a biomass. We're far better growing something like bamboo because it, it can handle you know, going underwater and doesn't really care how much water you pour on it. And it stabilises the, the ground and, and the bamboo more just looks after itself. The only thing you're doing, you're taking out a bamboo stalk and it grows again. So you're not even, you know, unlike when with tree farming, you chop down a tree and you have to wait 30 years for another tree. Bamboo, you, cut, you take out your cones every year and they just reshoot. So from the sustainability and ease of processing, bamboo in this area would make a lot, lot more sense than hemp. You know, we'd probably go hemp. On the other side of the divide, is where we obviously we get all the high, very high rainfall on the um, upper north New South Wales coast. On the western side of the divide, it can still be drier and be actually better for growing hemp. Over there, where they're doing cropping already, you know, so there's a lot of farmers out there growing you know, corn and maize and better country. And plus, the farmers over there are on a larger scale. We wouldn't have to reinvent the wheel. A lot of their machinery would work for planting hemp anyway and we're doing it particularly while we're setting up the Shark Creek Earth Repair Centre is to be able to train people so looking at systems like contours and um, soil improvement through natural means biology rather than um, chemical fertilisers and natural fertilisers and it was very much along the lines of what we did in the Maldives too you know we were we were making biogas and then converting the bacteria to aerobic bacteria and using it for, for farming. Yeah, so we, we're just in the process of, as I said, doing the Shark Creek Environmental Centre so we can do that training and stuff with people. But in terms of scale, if Labor gets elected, I would hope that they're a bit serious about bringing industry back to Australia and we can look at doing organic industries rather than wrecking the panel industries. Sounds to me like the next project for you, Wadzi. Yeah, I'll keep me out of mischief for a few years. <laughs> I am officially retired now. I think I've got the pension, but a bit of energy left to put in, a bit more energy for Mother Earth, so we'll keep on plugging along. Any final words? Yeah, viva Mother Earth. And what a country. Respect, protect, and you can enjoy. That's Mick. That's the uh, the other the guy that's got the land we're doing the project on, so he... He'll be down your way in a few weeks, so he might be able to pop in and have a bit of a chat to you in the studio. Great. All right. Well, thank you for that. No worries, and we'll talk soon.
What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by law, 6 p.m. Tuesdays. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Thank you, 3CR. We love you. Throughout the occupied West Bank, violence meted out to Palestinians by the occupying forces is a daily recurrence, which intensifies at certain times. And one of those is the beginning of Ramadan, and this year is no exception. In the first day, more than 20 Palestinians were injured, 10 were detained by the Israeli occupying forces near the Damascus Gate in the occupied city of Jerusalem. To discuss this and other issues, I spoke with Palestinian scientist and activist Fahid Ali and asked him if he could explain the significance of the Damascus Gate to the Palestinians. So the Damascus Gate is one of the sort of main gates to the old city of Jerusalem, which is under Israeli occupation. It is within occupied East Jerusalem. It's essentially you know, very proximal to the um, you know, Al-Aqsa compound. And what we're seeing at the moment is because, particularly in that sector of Jerusalem, there's quite a high density of Arab populations. There's also quite a number of significant places of worship, um, churches and mosques and so on. It does become very often a flashpoint when uh, tensions, you know, sort of develop. So... One of the things that we're seeing now is the prevention of Palestinian worshippers to have access to um, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, we're actually seeing as well a prevention of um, Christian Palestinians having um, access to their holy sites as well. And sort of the, I guess, the control or the restriction of entry through the Damascus Gate tends to be something that very often becomes a real site of resistance against that. And how does Israel justify disallowing Palestinians to be there? The justification from the Israeli side is that it is necessary to maintain security within the area. And very often they will say, well, look, well, there's Palestinian provocateurs that arm themselves with stones that they're, you know, planning to pelt upon so-and-so. And and really, the interesting thing about this is that sort of recently, um, and it's actually been going on for a long time, but it tends to sort of come up again during Ramadan, there are far-right extremist settler groups who are calling for incursions upon the Al-Aqsa compound. 
and they're calling, in fact, offering a cash reward to anyone who is able to desecrate the mosque by conducting an animal sacrifice. And so what will end up happening is that because these settlers want access to the Al-Aqsa compound, that leads to a provocation, it leads to conflict, and so what the Israeli forces tend to do is to sort of suppress Palestinians. Just the other day we saw Palestinians being locked inside uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and inside the Dome of the Rock while they were praying so that Israeli soldiers could take these settlers and escort them through the compound under armed guard. So it's it's really not about you know Palestinian provocateurs. It's very much a provocation from far right Israeli extremists who are you know there chanting things like death to Arabs. You know a second Nakba is coming. Nakba being this sort of foundational genocide of the Palestinian people back in 1948. So yeah. So there's actually no religious reason for those right-wing settlers to be there apart from being provocateurs? Yeah, so in fact, the chief rabbinate of Israel has sort of ruled that, um, you know, Jewish presence at the, what, you know, what the Al-Aqsa compound or what they call the Temple Mount is forbidden. And they have a, they have a biblical justification for that. And for a very long time, that was sort of the, that was a status quo. Uh, the, the, the compound itself is under the authority of, you know, under the authority of Jordanian authorities. So it's, it's administered by the Kingdom of Jordan. And religious Jews in Israel had really no interest in upsetting that. But as we see sort of the emergence or resurgence rather of this far right movement within Israel, there are calls to upend that status quo and to in fact um, you know what they call for is ultimately a destruction of the Al-Aqsa Mosque to you know regain or reassert sort of Israeli sovereignty over that area. Um, and so for Palestinians who are sort of both the indigenous you know owners of that land, but also you know innocent worshippers, that that is real, really concerning. So you have the Israeli so-called defence force taking these settlers in to do their work. Exactly. That's right. What's Jordan got to do with it, or what did Jordan have to do with it? Back in 1948, when the partition plan of Palestine was sort of announced by the United Nations, there was a, there was a war at that time because, you know, the Palestinian inhabitants of Palestine sort of weren't going to give up the majority of their land at the sort of behest of... United Nations. And what what ended up happening was that the West Bank, including Jerusalem, came under the under the t- territorial control of the Jordanian government. And then in nineteen sixty seven when the six day war occurred and Israel was able to sort of gain control over that region in order to sort of maintain sort of stability, because it is a real flashpoint, the Al-Aqsa compound is third holiest site in Islam, the compromise position was that Jordan would maintain authority over that compound. It would be in the trust of sort of the Jordanian religious authorities. But really beyond that, so they administer it, they, they sort of, you know, set the rules on the, on, on the compound. But beyond that, the sort of Jordanian involvement is, is quite limited. Ramadan, how much longer has it to run? 
we've got another, I believe, nine days of Ramadan. And you're likely to see increased violence by the settlers during that time? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a, it's almost, we're seeing a lot of religious holidays sort of coalesce at this period. So there's Easter, there's Passover, there's Ramadan. And um, I don't think that this derives from religion. I really don't. Um, and I don't think it has anything to do with the worshippers at the mosque being Muslim because Palestinian Christians also face sort of enormous discrimination, the same kind of violence that Palestinian Muslims do. But I do think that we do tend to see this arise sort of every Ramadan. And I think the reason for that is because it's times like these where Palestinians go out to the mosque. They're more visible. They're there in numbers. And for far-right settler extremists, they see that as an opportunity to engage in provocation. Um, and I think that's really the key point, the, the fact that there are visible Palestinians really seems to irk some of these settler groups. There's no protection for the Palestinians who go there? No, not at all. The entire area is under the control of the Israeli military, um, and there's no sort of equivalent defence force or peacekeeping, international peacekeeping unit there to safeguard Palestinian rights. We've even seen sort of attacks on foreign journalists and, and on, even on the Red Crescent. So medics from the Red Crescent have also, you know, very, very visibly identified themselves as being medics or journalists and have still been pelted with rubber bullets and, um, you know, caused quite serious injuries. So unfortunately, that protection is not offered to the Palestinians. And there's more than serious injury now, isn't there? Indeed, just recently um, a young man was taken to hospital with a, a skull fracture and the, the situation is so critical that they can't actually operate at this stage. So it's, it's quite bad. There's a number of people who have been very seriously wounded. And um, in last year we saw about you know, 200 Palestinians killed by bombings in Gaza, including something like 66 children. And... We can hope that we don't see that kind of those levels of casualties again. But what we really need to do is to ensure that sort of Israel adheres by its obligations under international law and takes real serious steps to prevent provocations by far right settlers and to in fact remove that armed presence from the compound because that is only going to generate conflict. In a few moments, we're going to talk about Albert's systems here, what they've been doing here in Australia and the Future Fund and cooperation with the Victorian and, this, and the federal government. What role has Albert got in the Palestinian, in the West Bank there? Albert is an arms manufacturer and basically what has happened recently is that they have sort of established a sort of a centre within uh, you know, in Australia, in Melbourne, in partnership with the Victorian government. They're an Israeli defense corporation. They, they produce, you know, uh, they produce weapons, they produce aircraft that, that are engaged in conducting many of these violations upon the Palestinian people. And so basically we know that Elbit is also involved in sort of the provision of sort of surveillance to the Israeli state within the West Bank. The, the, this is quite, quite uh, a serious issue in terms of you know, human rights 
the ethics of investment and the ethics of Australian partnerships with foreign companies. And so when we know that something like the International Court of Justice says that, okay, look, this is bad, the, the involvement, the things that this company are involved in are bad, um, they're violations of human rights, they're involved in violations, they're involved in suppressing Palestinians, then how can a responsible Australian government in any state say, okay, we're going to invest in this, we're going to set up a partnership with this, we're going to allow this company to set up a centre within Melbourne. So that partnership is in collaboration with a number of Victorian universities and what they intend to do is to sort of enhance, it's, it's a research and development project which will inevitably flow on to sort of the, the technologies that are used not only to repress Palestinians, it must be said, but to repress many other people who are fighting for justice and these technologies often end up in the hands of sort of repressive governments and, and forces the world over. Are you aware of what the connection between Elvis and the federal government is? I'm not sure that I am. Activists were disappointed that the reason given for withdrawing from the or forcing them to withdraw from the future fund was Elbert's use of cluster bombs rather than what they're doing to the Palestinian people. Yeah, well, I, I think that sort of speaks for itself. Uh, Palestinians never really seem to figure into any debate about anything. Um, and very sadly, when Palestinians experience, you know, loss of life and they experience violence and bombings, um, there is, you know, sort of a, a silence around those issues. Um, I was just thinking about the other day when uh, Human Rights Watch um, announced its report into the treatment of Uyghurs by China. There was a huge amount of media coverage around that. And when the very same organization released a report finding, you know, grave violations of international law by Israel that amounted to the crime of apartheid, it barely got a mention anywhere. So Palestinians don't seem to factor into the debate about human rights, unfortunately. But you and your friends made sure that your voices and your presence was noted at a protest at Bankstown on Saturday? That's right. So on Saturday, a group of Palestinian youth activists called for a protest in Bankstown stand against a number of things. One was uh, the Israeli apartheid, the Australian collaboration and military ties and funding and provision of arms to Israel and the bombing of Gaza. So we called for an end on all of these things and the, an end to the incursions on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, we had a very good turnout for something that had essentially two days of notice um, and it was really good to see a solid crowd there. And I think that what we're going to see is a, you know, a recent poll conducted or commissioned by the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network found that a majority, a majority of Australians actually support an independent Palestinian state majority of Australians support um, an end to the illegal settlement enterprise in the West Bank and an end to war on the Palestinians. So that's really positive and I think we're only going to see that grow over time and, you know, Palestinians like myself, we're not going anywhere. And of course you have been active also with the, the Sydney Festival and that was a great success. Oh, thank you, yes. Yeah, the Sydney Festival campaign ran over late November to January um, just recently and um, that was initiated by the fact that 
Sydney Festival had accepted a $20,000 partnership with the Israeli government. We had asked them to, we'd met with them and we'd asked them to return the money. Unfortunately, they, they said that they could not, uh, despite, you know, you know, very professional attempts at communicating with them. And we made it very clear in our meetings with them that if they chose not to return the money, then we would initiate a boycott campaign. So we did. And what ended up happening was that a quarter of their program had withdrawn entirely and, you know, many more acts beyond that had been disrupted in some way or another. Um, it was phenomenal because it was a action that was organized not only by Palestinian activists, but by many artists within their community as well. Um, we had some fabulous solidarity from, uh, you know, artists who have stood with us and continue to stand with us. And this has really, I think, set the tone for future artistic events in Australia because it will be very, very difficult for people to accept dodgy funding, be that from Israel, be that from fossil fuel companies in the future. Well, just to get back to Palestine, you've explained the violence that's perpetrated against the people by Israeli Defence Forces. It's also, they also attack the non-government organisations and that's another attack on the Palestinians' right to self-determination and just the, the right to live. Yeah, that's, that's right. So essentially, Israel has designated six Palestinian NGOs as sort of being terror groups. And, you know, this is really quite extraordinary. Um, we're talking about things like Defense for Children International, which is a, you know, a very well regarded NGO, um, but they've de- designated the Palestinian branch of that to be a terrorist group beyond that we've got you know prisoners rights groups we've got you know legal justice groups things that are very very important to civil society and why israel has taken this decision is not to you know not because these groups are actually involved in any kind of uh, terror activity as israel uh, suggests by the way, without any kind of evidence, nobody has seen any evidence all the way up from the Australian government to the UN. Nobody who has asked for, asked for any firm evidence has received it. What Israel is doing is actually characteristic of many repressive regimes around the world, which is civil society organizations, because they do important work and because the work that they do shines a light on the crimes that Israel is committing. So... You know, it's it's so crucial for us as proponents of democracy and you know social justice and civil society to to stand up against this. You could only hope that with more and more people around the world supporting the Palestinians, that Israel's time might be coming that they've actually got to do the right thing by the Palestinians. Absolutely, I think we're we're fast approaching a turning point. And, you know, I have been so honoured to work alongside not only, you know, my Palestinian friends and, and peers, but also, you know, many other activists working in this space, be they, um, you know, so Jews against the occupation, uh, Jews against fascism, or to, to be groups. The way in which, you know, Israel conducts itself is primarily, and you know, centrally harmful to Palestinians, but it also is a really serious threat to Jewish society as well. 
what you'll hear politicians say is, as a friend of Israel, we suggest blah, blah, blah. But really, it goes a lot deeper than that. It's about what kind of world we want to live in, what kind of world we want to establish, where everyone, no matter their background, no matter their religion, color, race, creed, can live in peace and security. And that cannot be the case in Palestine until Israel complies with international law, ends the occupation, and ends the apartheid presence in Palestine. And I think in a way it's a stain on all of us here in Australia that our governments, whether they be Labor or Liberal, are so close to Israel and seem to have no compassion for the Palestinians. Oh, absolutely. I would say it's craven. These politicians are not naive. They know what's going on. But I think that they see this through the prism of, well, in, in, in almost a way that sort of is anti-Semitic in itself. So what will happen, we've seen this across the political spectrum, is a, a number of Israel lobby groups will offer politicians these junket tours to Israel where they're given a very one-sided look at the situation. You know, they're wined and dined and they come back and they, they think, oh, this was fabulous, I'm, yep, that, that's my vote for Israel. Completely ignoring the fact that the fact that you've been wined and dined does not remove the moral necessity of standing with people under occupation. Um, and so the Palestinians who you know, are, have relatively fewer resources and we have really nothing beyond that force of moral argument, what do we do when we go in to see politicians? All we can say is this is wrong, this is unjust, this is a clear violation of international law and we are asking you to look inside yourself and find that heart in which you know this is wrong. And I think that there are a number of politicians in Australia who recognize that. And, you know, we've seen some fabulous support from, you know, particularly the Greens, a number of people in the Labour Party. But we really need to go a lot further. And we really need to, to shift the position of Australian politicians on this issue so that it actually reflects what, uh, what Australian people want. And what Australian people want is freedom and justice for Palestinians. And how are you going to do that? Well, we're going to keep doing what we're doing now. We're going to keep protesting. We're going to keep fighting. I think that we're in a new sort of era of Palestinian organizing at the moment where we've got a number of really fabulous young Palestinian activists finding their voice. And, you know, we're active in our communities. We're, you know, we're, we're third, sometimes even fourth generation migrants at this point. And we're here. We're, we're, we're in these spaces. We're in politics. We're in the media. We're in arts. And that makes it a lot harder to silence our voices because we're physically present. And I think that that presence of voice, that, that fact that we're representing ourselves, the fact that we're organizing and we're not giving up, that is going to go a huge way towards changing where we are. Thank you so much for talking today. My pleasure. Thank you. And we all need to do a bit as well. That was Fahad Ali. Palestinian scientist and political activist. The fears are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes for fears, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white fear to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. 
where you support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10 a.m. on 3CR Community Radio, 855 a.m. on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Seventy-two-year-old Nobel Peace Prize winner Jose Ramos Horta has scored a landslide victory in Timor-Leste presidential elections, sixty-two point oh nine percent to that of the incumbent Francisco Luolo Guterres, who managed thirty-seven point nine one. Human rights activist Peter Murphy was there for round one, but not the second, which is the one that matters. First, Peter, the difference between the two candidates, Horta, 62.09, Luola, 37.91. Was that expected, and if so, why? Actual pattern of previous presidential elections, except for 2017, has been this one. So it's like 60-40, roughly. The deeper political dynamics in the country are that the Fretilin sort of core vote is around 30%. They seem to be able to add about 10% to that when a um, second round comes along like this this kind of election. And it's, it's largely the same at this time. So I think the influence on the other side is sort of a background force coming from Shanana Gusmao, who often doesn't come out in front and, and speak and he said supports other forces. And um, I think in the end, a choice that the people make that uh, if Shanana really wants somebody to be elected, then they'll, they'll make sure it happens. And that way, avoid further tension and uh, danger. But do the people of Timor-Leste really see the president as a father figure or is the the government itself more important? I think the government itself is more important and uh, the Prime Minister's role is is much more important politically than the President. The people see the President as part of the government, really. It's all it's more like all of one, all of a one uh, in the public mind and uh, the efforts of, say, Luolo to uh, the outgoing President to uh, campaign on the basis that... Um, the role of the president is secondary. It's uh, it's an enabling role. It's a unifying role. It's not a role about what the government will do. It doesn't sort of grab the people at all. So in the first round of these elections, for instance, Jose Ramos Horta was basically campaigning on how many jobs he would provide, how they would be provided, things like that. 
and and Luola was talking about you know the the complicated role of uh, managing the different parties in the um, in the parliament and uh, respecting their votes and so on. So uh, in the second round, Tower Martin Ruark, who's the prime minister now, he joined the the campaigning and and campaigned on what the government would do. I think, uh, I think that's one of the lessons from this uh, this recent e- election, that the technical details of the constitution and the del- you know specific roles of different players, and especially the president, are not so important. And I think even as Australians, we would appreciate that. You know, if we're having an election here, we talk about you know what's going to happen to the country and and what what would the government do for the people. You know, unfortunately, you know, Australia is not a republic and we don't, we don't elect a president. But I do think that that's, that's how national elections work in general. So, you know, I think uh, while we ever have this generation of leaders, the ones who were the, the leaders of the independence movement from the 1970s, while ever they're really the leaders in politics, possibly it's going to stay like this. This is Horta's second time as president. How was he judged from his first time, from 2007 to 2012? Well, I think he had a, a re- really um, pretty good record in that time. You know, it was a tumultuous period from 2007 to 2008, and re- really from 2006 when this violent upheaval happened that uh, I think was driven by Shanana Gusmao. So the fact that by 2009... Everybody was able to go back and live in their own homes and, and out of refugee camps. You know, it was very, very welcome. I would say that he finished his term trying to negotiate a sensible, in his term, you know, some kind of sensible government program that that was well appreciated. But when he, he ran again for another term in the 2012 elections, uh, Shanana had withdrawn support for him and decided to back Tower Matan Ruak. In that first round of that election, uh, Jose Ramos Horta only achieved 17% and was knocked out in the first round. You know, even though he might have been well appreciated for um, helping to stabilise the country in that five-year term he had, um, it, it just didn't. It just did not translate uh, into a second term. And I would, I would say that the um, Decision by Janana to withdraw, you know, support for him or to back somebody else uh, was crucial in that particular outcome. How was the presidency of Luolo judged? It's hard to say. The um, parliament and the country, uh, I think, are calm. There was a, you know, destabilisation of the government following the 2018 election. Janana was wanting. He was not in the role of Prime Minister. He was like the power behind, pulling the strings a bit. He didn't get uh, all of the ministers appointed that he wanted, but partly because Tawa Matanrua just could not uh, tolerate a uh, collection of questionable characters in the Cabinet that he he was running. Tawa had requested Luolo as the President to uh, consider the situation and Luolo then refused to accept several of the nominated cabinet ministers nominations coming from CNRT Shanana's political party. Tower Martin Ruark had a, his own party called the People's Liberation Party which had run on an anti-corruption clean government platform in part. 
So I, th- I think it was, you know, <laughs> one of those political problems that Luola was very skillful at managing, but it, it really earned the undying ire of Janana Gusmao against, I think, against both Tao Matanruk and against Luolo. Let's look at the promises that Porter made before the election. He said that he would dissolve Parliament, there'd be a political earthquake in the National Parliament. What yeah. do you believe he meant by that? Well, he, he meant he was going to carry out a promise. He he'd written, he'd signed a commitment to Shanana Gusmao to dissolve the parliament in the event that he won the presidential election. And uh, it is a political earthquake in the sense that, uh, you know, another election for the parliament isn't due till next year. And, you know, we, we've had this debate ourselves in Australia from 19, 1975. When you have a government with a majority in the parliament, who can overthrow them? Is it really a... Um, a constitutional process to do this. And in fact, the, the constitution of Timor-Leste does allow the president to dissolve the parliament and call elections, but only in the case that the budget uh, fails to pass the parliament or there's a vote of no confidence. So you need to, the, you know, the majority in the parliament has to, has to collapse of itself, you know, in, in an internal parliamentary dynamic. And we don't yet have that. It's possible that that will happen. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, from the first day that uh, Joseph Ramos Horta saw, you know, that he had won the election in the second round, he began talking about the need to do this. So he, he's going and talking to all of the political parties in the parliament to look for a way to transfer votes from the current uh, government majority to a majority led by Shanan Gusmao. So CNRT would become the principal party in, in the parliament, it's got 21 seats, so it needs 12 more to get a bare majority in the 65-seat parliament. Obviously possible to get it, but given the actual experience of the last two years, you know, the, uh, it's, it's actually difficult to see where the 12 votes would come from. That you know, Shanana himself has abused and uh, attacked the 12 people that he's going to need to come across in that period. He'll have to mend some bridges to do it, I think. Well, where does all that leave the people? The people are, are hoping, you know, that there'll be stability and peace. That's the first thing. And I, I think that they would be pretty, you know, the radars will be really tuned up for any difficulties. Yeah, I do, I do think that there'll be some kind of apprehension now about what will happen. But uh, at this stage, I haven't uh, heard, you know, anything particular. So there's, um, I think, just behind the scenes political discussions, uh, negotiations taking place. If the parliament can't, you know, rearrange itself, I think it will be very difficult for the president, the new president, to dissolve it. Um, without, a, I would expect a, a real um, battle to take place in the Supreme Court of the country you know, a constitutional court to adjudicate on that type of move. Yeah, so I do think uh, we're, we're on the, you know, precipice or, you know, the edge of a earthquake, as Jose Ramoswater himself said. It, it's sort of a contradiction because he promised, you know, dialogue, unity, stability. That would be what he, he wants to achieve for the country. But, it, of course, he signed this thing, which um, this agreement with Shanana, which 
you know, makes the opposite uh, happen. So we're on the edge of a problem, and uh, I think the Australian government, the Indonesian government especially, you know, will be watching very closely how this plays out. So when you hear Ramos Horta speaking, is it really Gujmao speaking? No, I, I think it's uh, Ramos Horta speaking. He's a very strong character, you know, in himself. He's got a very big idea of his own importance and role. I'm sure not prepared to be simply a cipher for Shanana Gushmao. But he's realistic enough, of course, to, to know that Shanana is a very, he's a more powerful figure and, and he can't uh, simply ignore him at all. In fact, he's got to somehow meet Shanana's expectations. But in, in the speeches, for instance, Jose Ramos Horta begins by talking about the prospect of Timor Less becoming a member of, a full member of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And then he talks about the economic benefits that will bring. He, he's projecting that there'll be a lot of foreign direct, he calls it foreign direct investment. That is, that is, uh, because of the, uh, economic uh, liberalization agreements for the in- internal ASEAN market that there would be um, investors willing to come to Timor Leste and to create jobs there in manufacturing mainly some sort of processing jobs and therefore you know that's the core of his jobs promise that he, he put out in the election campaign now that's not what Janana talks about at all Janana is talking about the greater sunrise gas field being developed and a petrochemical industry being built on the south coast of Timor-Leste, a really big project for a very small uh, country like Timor-Leste to achieve. And the way it's been set up, Timor-Leste would have to finance almost 60% of the gas field development and 100% of the petrochemical development. And, you know, quite frankly, does not have uh, the resources on its own to do that and would have to borrow money and would have to bet a whole petroleum fund and more on on the success of such a project. So um, its only real partner in that would be Woodside Petroleum, which is is now the minority shareholder at about 33%. And the the attitude of Woodside's uh, against this, development of petrochemical plant on the south coast and it, it would want guarantees that it would not lose any money from any problems that emerged in the petrochemical plant side of this project and you know it says a lot of things to negotiate there so anyway that's Shanana's vision that he wants to this new government to achieve and um, I think that, again there's a, there's a problem that Jose Ramasorda can't really be sure that ASEAN will will provide full membership. It needs the consensus of of the other 10 member states. And so far, Singapore has been blocking this uh, uh, big step. I'm not sure what's going on, what is behind Singapore's attitude. Um, And and behind Singapore, uh, which is an important ASEAN member, of course, is Indonesia, which is is the most important ASEAN member. It's a bit murky and and difficult to perceive what's going on. You know, on a more superficial level, to be a full member of ASEAN, Timor-Leste would have to be able to provide a full embassy in every one of those 10 countries. And the expense of that is is also um, a challenge, I think, for Timor.
what do you believe the current Australian government thinks about the results of this election? And, of course, we'll have a new government very soon. Yes. Unfortunately, I think Australia looks at Timor uh, less as a um, national security um, situation primarily and does not really look at the internal development of the country um, with uh, any deep uh, attention or concern. There's a big uh, Chinese embassy on the waterfront in, in Dili and there's a big a bigger US embassy on the waterfront in Dili. Um, so, you know, there's a sort of eyeballs uh, of great powers are, are right on Timor-Leste, but it's all about geopolitics and, and, you know, submarine channels and things like that. I think unfortunate that the Australian government is not sort of thinking about the, the welfare of the people of Timor-Leste uh, enough. And I think that because of the previous experience with uh, the Gusmao governments from 2007 through to 2015, and really this whole period since 2007, I think the Australian uh, foreign affairs establishment and 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 the military and that uh, have had their fingers burnt a bit by their dealings with Shanana. He, he's a very erratic character, really, and a very um, a mercurial. They probably now have come to the conclusion that he's an unreliable sort of uh, ally to have. And so I think they would look at this with some concern, but not to do with the economic development, but a concern about. You know what type of relationship would would Shanana develop with China or Russia or or anybody else? You know they would they would just be uh, watching that very closely. I think. Just finally, with Shanana, could anyone have predicted the way that he has actually turned out after all those years of of being part of the or big part of the resistance and spending all that time in jail and coming back a hero? And now, sort of a de- mm. and now a destabilising factor in the country. I'm afraid people have been able to see it for a very long time. Why is he? There's no real formula, you know, for analysing um, these sort of historical developments. And in a country the size of Timor Leste, you know, which at the start of the Indonesian invasion there in 1975, it had a population of about 650,000. Very few of them had any education. Now, even now today, the population is 1.4 million. So it's it's a very small society, and you know certain personalities can can you know be having a very big impact on on that type of polity in a way that you know even a, even a small country like Australia with its millions does not really experience. So that's one thing. But because of the you know, incredible brutality and uh, huge loss of life that occurred in the 19, you know, second part of the 1970s and in the early 1980s. The trauma in the country has been, re- it's really deep, it's really widespread. And Chanana, by 1981-2, he was the leader of the resistance in a very, very difficult uh, situation of um, uh, threat from the Indonesian occupation. He seems to have swung from one side to another for a couple of years there. And I think from that period, so it's going back a long time now, those uh, other people in the resistance were able to perceive him as a a difficult character in leadership. And as they got to the end of the 1980s, he he took a 
himself a decision to sort of minimise the fretillin element of the resistance, which was, I think is a forlorn, you know, a, a wrong sort of project, but uh, and it hasn't worked. But uh, you know, he's been trying to diminish fretillin since that time, and. Jose Ramasorta became an ally in that process at the same time. There's this um, set of relationships which has continued, you know, in, in this pattern now for a little over 30 years. So yes, I think there's people who know, but who, who do know what a difficult sort of pathway Shanana is making the country walk. But I think that the bigger picture, of course, as I said, is this is huge trauma from the invasion and occupation and there's a definite absolute conviction on the part of most of the players in the country that there's no basis for any violent confrontations among the people about their independence and their future there's been more than enough violence forever you know in 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 timor-leste based on those sort of convictions um, this difficult relationship with Chanana has has been negotiated as as best as possible um, by political means um, in the, in nearly all of this period, except for that very difficult time of 2006 to 2008, when it really blew up very badly again, and there was a lot of uh, killing and a lot of damage to property, and again, and that's 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 now. 14 or 15 years ago, the people that, you know, they can remember that very clearly too, so that no one wants that to happen again either. So there's a lot of give to pressure coming from Shanana. And you can sort of see that Jose Ramos Order is trying to manage that in, in his way. He's sort of switched horses. In, in 2017, he was in Fredlin campaigning for Luolo. And then in, you know, this year, he's, he's the candidate of Shanana against Luolo. Um, but I think uh, to be, you know, sort of um, soberly honest about the situation, um, whatever you actually think of these people, I think Jose Ramos Order is also trying to manage these complicated dynamics. So going back to Janana's own personality, I, I, I've seen him only a few times in person, and you know, he's another person who's clearly living with trauma. And uh, he's he's uh, got in sort of um, serious health problems, so he's often on medications. You know, I'd be you know very concerned all the time that you know, well, what's his state of mind and what sort of is his obsession and and try to manage it. That's one thing. But and I think it's pretty clear that he sees himself, you know, as the father of the nation. Anyone who doesn't really see it as much as he does, he's, he's willing to, you know, hit them. He's willing to hurt them. You know, every, everyone involved in politics in Timor West knows this. You know, my own way of talking about Shandana is that he, you know, he's a bit of a megalomaniac and uh, a di- therefore a difficult person, but he's able to, to call on support or intimidate people into, you know, agreeing with him you know, in a fairly big way because of that history of the resistance. I think, you know, people are struggling to manage that in Timor. Uh, I think people outside the country hardly seem to perceive it. But I think those of us who care about the people in Timor-Leste and Australia's sort of historic um, obligation, I think, to help them, we need to be more aware and be 
a helpful player not to dabble, you know, not ourselves in some way or other to stir up trouble when it's difficult enough as it is. It's hard to be frank about Chanana, uh, uh, but I think it's, you know, we've got to find the right way to analyse this situation. And he does it so well. Human rights activist Peter Murphy. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.